Somewhere in the back of my mind, Kajaira Fraze and her baby are among those that dwell there. Every now and then, my brain flashes to a picture of her, and I remember that she's still missing. And then there's the fact that there hasn't been any updates about her. It's so wild to me that she's not a household name like Lacey Peterson was, for example, when she disappeared. She was also eight months pregnant. Why doesn't Kajira get the same attention? Who is really invested in her well-being? At this point, it seems really hard to tell. The family blames the police. The police blame the family. What's really going on? And let's keep it real because I will say that it seems like both sides have made plenty of mistakes and questionable decisions. It's a crazy thing when you don't even trust the family, right? Of course, this is the part the public latched on to, that conflict. So people love to bash the family on social media. Whether it's true or false, that remains unclear. But many people are convinced that Kajira's family had something to do with her disappearance. And you can't blame them, right? They have, like I said, made questionable decisions. And people don't perceive them as trustworthy in general. And with all that going on, it seems like Kajira and her baby have become a byline, just a second place subject in their own story. All the while, each day that passes without any updates, I fear the worst for them both. So, since you're listening, I'm especially talking to y'all listening in Beaumont, California, and or Riverside County. If you know anything at all that might help the investigation into Kajira's disappearance, you are urged to contact the Beaumont Police Department at 951-769-8500. For today's episode, I'll tell you what happened to Akia Eggleston. She was also a pregnant young woman who disappeared mere weeks before giving birth back in 2017. The investigation into her disappearance has spanned six years at this point, and her family and close friends have been riding hard for Akia and her baby since day one. Let's get into it. I'm Renetta Rideout, and this is Massage and War Murders. It's after 12 p.m. on Sunday, May 7th, 2017, and Zenobia Wilson and the rest of her family are at a venue for her niece, Akia Eggleston's baby shower. But Akia isn't there. She was supposed to be at the venue a little before noon so she could see the setup. But the 22-year-old was eight months pregnant with a high-risk pregnancy at that, and she also had a two-year-old daughter, Emery. So maybe she was just running a little late. But when the baby shower was supposed to start, guests were arriving and Akia still wasn't there. Everyone began to worry. 
Akia's stepfather, Sean Wilkinson, was among those calling and calling Akia, but no matter how many times they all called, the phone just rolled right over to voicemail. So now it's super obvious that something is wrong, and I'm not exactly sure who went to Akia's apartment, but at least a few loved ones did, including her aunt Zenobia. And when they arrived, they knew immediately something majorly wrong had happened because Akia wasn't at her apartment either. However, maybe even more disturbing than Akia being missing was that there were other things missing too. When the family got into the apartment, it was in disarray. In the HBO production, Black and Missing, episode three, there's a short clip of what some of the apartment looked like and it was a mess. Things were knocked over, there was trash on the floor, a small bottle was knocked over and its contents had spilled all over the table. And it looked like some of the wooden furniture was either broken or toppled over. It was almost like someone hastily moved Ikea out because her dresser that had once been full of clothes was gone, along with all of her clothing. And then, sitting rather ominously at the bottom of the staircase, was a mop and a bucket. When Zenobia saw that, she said her mind just spiraled, thinking there could be blood somewhere in the apartment and what exactly that could mean. She was terrified for Akia and everything about the apartment added more fear. As far as she knew, Akia hadn't mentioned that she was planning to move. Plus, the fact that she's heavily pregnant with a high-risk pregnancy definitely eliminated any possibility that she moved herself. After all, she could barely walk. Add to that that many of her belongings, including her bed and kitchen supplies, were left behind. And the family knew that whatever was going on, Ikea was in trouble, so they reported her missing. Thankfully, by this time, it was confirmed that Emery, Akia's two-year-old, was with her godmother, so she was safe and accounted for. When the report was filed with the police, per the usual, they were unconcerned. Despite the facts of Akia's physical condition, they did what they always do, chalked her disappearance up to being voluntary. They spouted the usual reasons, like she's an adult and can be in touch or not if she wants to. Zenobia and Sean tried to stress the situation by pointing out that Akia was dearly and most surely devoted to her two-year-old daughter and would never leave her. In the hours she'd been missing, she hadn't called about her daughter at all. That was highly unusual and indicated to her family that this was not voluntary. But regardless of the facts, the police lacked urgency. Two days later, on May 9th, detectives from Baltimore Police Department finally responded to the report and came to Akia's apartment. They were supposed to be looking for signs of foul play and to take witness statements. According to Detective Michael Reno, during an interview on Crime Watch Daily, he said that as they canvassed the area, they spoke to a maintenance worker for the apartment complex. The worker told him and his partner that he'd just seen Akia an hour ago, and he seemed fairly certain of that. 
That would be all fine and good if this was the day she went missing, May 7th. But it wasn't. It was two whole days later. And for some reason, they decided to take this guy's word for it that he saw her an hour ago. I'm sorry, but the math ain't mathin'. Anyway, I'm already digressing. So the detectives go inside Akia's apartment to see for themselves. Somehow they miss the fact that the house is wrecked, but they also notice that it looks like she moved, but left several things behind. They saw three triangular shaped grooves in the drywall just outside of Akia's door, which they believed is consistent with someone trying to maneuver a dresser out of her room, down the hall, and then down the stairs. Whoever moved it obviously bumped it along the way. Lastly, they spoke to one of Akia's neighbors and they said they thought they saw her at a bus stop nearby. So detectives obtained hours worth of footage from the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, AKA MTA, and they never identified her at any bus stop, nor having got on or off of any bus. Now, from here, I really don't know what happens in the investigation. I get the impression they just stopped looking for her. In fact, I don't even know for certain that all the stuff I just said, the police actually did on May 9th. I basically had to piece it all together from interviews with the family and detectives, the probable cause affidavit, and various news articles. But I got a very strong impression of initial negligence and sloppy police work. Sorry, not sorry. But regardless of the quality of their work, by the end of May 9th, it was reported on NBC WBAL-TV that Baltimore Police Media Relations Chief T.J. Smith said, quote, We don't believe this case involves foul play at this time, but we are concerned because she left and no one knows where she is, end quote. And that's kind of where it seems like they left things for quite a while. Meanwhile, Akia's family didn't let a single day go by without looking for her. They'd reached a new level of desperation 10 days after Akia's disappearance, and they reached out to the Black and Missing Foundation for help. And the organization did what they do best. Sean, Sonobia, and the rest of their family were taken under wing and their voices were propelled into the world. Within a month, Akia's story was picked up by national Black news outlet, News One. Bamfi also helped to organize searches and vigils for Akia, but despite all their efforts and the publicity generated from all of that stuff, Akia still hadn't been found. Even though all of Akia's family and friends were doing everything they could to find her, there was someone very noticeably absent from everything, and that was the baby's father. But who was he? Akia had gone to great lengths to keep the man's identity a secret from her family, telling her friends that she wanted to keep her business on the low. And I wonder if that has anything to do with just how they even know each other. His name is Michael Andre Robertson, and back in 2017, he was 36 years old. 
He was the run-of-the-mill type scrub and one of those guys who clearly thought he looked way better than he did. And lots of women validated that, apparently. Because this dude has kids. Nah, I don't mean he has kids. I mean, he has kids' kids. Like, a lot of them. Zenobia said in an interview that she came to learn that he, quote, has more kids than you can count on your hands, end quote. In fact, he actually lived with another 22-year-old woman named Hallie Pomeroy. She'd just given birth to her second child with Robertson in August 2016, just one month before Akia got pregnant. But again, who the fuck was this guy and how'd he get into Akia's orbit? Well, for that answer, we gotta go back to the 90s. Yeah when Akia was just a little girl and was being babysat by Robertson's grandmother. Turns out that Sean, Akia's stepdad, and Robertson knew each other as kids themselves. They knew each other and each other's family so long that when Sean and Akia's mother got married, they felt comfortable enough having Robertson's grandma babysit their precious Akia. So that's how they knew each other. Now, I'm not gonna share my thoughts about that, but just know I'm side-eyeing the fuck out of that origin story. The dude was a whole 14 years older than Akia, and that's pretty weird as fuck, but yeah, that's how they met. Thankfully, I do not think anything untoward happened because I've never seen or heard mention of that anywhere. Out of everything that I read and watched, no one has ever alluded to that, so. I'm hoping that that means really nothing happened. So when did their love connection spark, you may wonder? Well, it was the summer of 2016 when they met at a mutual friend's birthday party and realized they knew each other. I guess from there, the two of them hit it off. I reckon he probably wasn't forthcoming about the fact that he had a whole girlfriend with whom he lived and was expecting his second child with, but like I said, the guy is a real loser. Sounding messy, right? Yeah, that's because it was. Here we have two young women with young children already pregnant at the same time or near the same time by the same dude. While he's living with Pomeroy and spending lots of time with the Kia, at some point, the two women were bound to find out about each other. I'm not sure how or when exactly that happened, but eventually the cat got out of the bag and in April, 2017, Pomeroy kicked Robertson out of her apartment. This led them to Akia's house where he practically lived until Akia disappeared. According to Akia's friends, she eventually came to know that this guy had at least one girlfriend, but she was already pregnant and genuinely just wanted to have a family with someone. It's assumed by those that knew and loved her that she might have still been coping with PTSD from the death of her mom and dealing with her feelings about abandonment. When you think about it, her mom died from breast cancer when she was just a teen, which left a hole inside of Ikea the size of Texas. Then boom, she's pregnant with her first child, and the relationship with the baby's father wasn't viable for whatever reason. So again, there's a trigger of a sense of abandonment. Herein enters this older man with whom she has some family history. 
After all, he's a childhood friend of her dad who actually is a stand-up guy. So maybe she's thinking this dude was too? I don't know. Unfortunately though, she later learned he wasn't worth a used fucking baby wipe. But once that became clear, it was too late. So while he's laid up at Akia's house, he's filling Akia's head with all sorts of things she wants to hear. He's telling her that they can get a place together because remember, Akia actually shared her apartment with a roommate and her kid. And he's telling her that they can be a happy family. I guess he even put it in her head he would be buying a car so they'd have transportation because shocker, he ain't have shit. Akia told her friends all of this multiple times through Facebook Messenger. They were all under the impression that Akia believed wholeheartedly that Robertson would be buying or renting a house and buying a car for them. Still, it was hard for them to believe it and can you blame them? They questioned whether or not it was real and Akia would assure them it was. Basically, to prove that he was serious, he told her he would be going to the baby shower that Akia had already paid $900 for and was scheduled in May. Not only would he be there, but he was bringing food, which all but guaranteed his presence, right? Well, we know that's not exactly how it went down. Okay, so back to 2017. Post Akia's disappearance, and now it is beyond the time when her baby would have been delivered by C-section because that's what she needed. The baby was actually breached. So like I said, very high risk pregnancy. So she would need the C-section and nothing has turned up. The police have now had a change of heart and consider Akia's disappearance suspicious, go figure. Only by then, more than two months had come and gone, and along with it, most of the critical physical evidence that has long since been cleared away. The apartment is now vacant, but the family and some close friends gathered there to hold a small vigil and to look around the property. As they did so, one of Akia's friends was standing on the front porch and happened to look down behind the shrubbery under the window when he spotted what looked like a card. When he got a better look at it, he realized it was Akia's debit card. It apparently had been there the whole time. Not only were they shocked in general to find it, Doing so signaled a couple of very important things. The first is that it was further proof that wherever Akia was, it wasn't by choice. And the second is that it's obvious the police didn't do a thorough search of her home or the surrounding area, because if they had, surely they would have found the debit card. It sucked so much because the only ones charged with the responsibility of finding out what happened to Akia were the police. And yet they had missed something so critical, something that would have laid that whole she ran away thing to rest immediately. Sonobia said in an interview that when the family told Detective Terrence McClarney that 
they found the debit card. He was just as unbothered and dismissive as he'd been from day one. He held on tightly to the idea that Akia simply ran away, despite all the evidence to the contrary. The relationship between Akia's family and the detectives investigating her disappearance was at times like a battle of words. The family argued with investigators that Akia didn't run away and detectives argued she had. Can you imagine being gaslit like that? I mean, the cops knew Akia's social security number was inactive, her bank accounts were dormant, and her social media activity just stopped. Literally everything stopped on May 3rd, and here these so-called detectives were claiming Akia had simply run away. Honestly, I don't know how anyone kept their cool. I'd be arrested because I know I would act a damn fool. I commend them, truly, because they never lost hope for answers, even when faced with extreme incompetence, racism, bias, and indifference. Their advocacy continued to pay off because in November 2017, the FBI became involved with the case and even put up a $25,000 reward for information regarding what happened to IKEA. But even with the federal assistance, no tips ever came in that led to IKEA. Time pushed on without word from Nakia or any indication of where she could be. Days turned into weeks and weeks into months, and before anyone knew it, two years had come and gone. While coping with their unimaginable grief and anxiety, Akia's family continued their endless search for her and her son without help from the police or Robertson for that matter. In fact, Robertson never showed his face at all in any capacity. He remained in the shadows and even felt so good that he upped and moved to Michigan with no other than, you guessed it, Pomeroy and their two kids. Anyway, in 2019, the Oxygen Network did a special that featured Akia's case, and Stephanie Bauer interviewed Detective McClarney. He'd been investigating, so he says, from the beginning, and apparently he was ready to share his theory with the public. He told Oxygen that he had reason to believe that whatever happened to Akia likely involved the convenience of the dumpsters right outside her back door and or a vehicle parked close to it. So let me back up a little and give you a mental picture of the layout of Akia's apartment. I've been calling it an apartment, but it's really more like a duplex condo. It's a two-story building with a tiny front porch. There's also a back door that leads directly to an on-premise open parking lot where that section's dumpsters are located. It's also highly visible from the front and the back, which I thought was weird because it seems to me like no one saw anything that happened that last day Akia was known to be alive. But alas, apparently, again, no one saw anything. Since the dumpsters and the parking lot are so close to the back door, 
Detective McClarney stated that it was pretty likely that Akia may have suffered some type of injury and due to her physical condition died from that injury and was likely disposed of in the dumpster. Now, if you're wondering how things seemingly went from zero to 100 in seconds, you're not alone. According to Synovia, when the family watched the premiere of the Oxygen episode, it was their first time ever hearing any such theory. They had been left completely in the dark for two years, and this is how they learned of what might have happened to Ikea. It was a punch to the chest for them, but as angry as they were that they were literally the last to know, I imagine there might have been some sense of relief that one, the police were actually doing something with the investigation, and two, there was hope that this nightmare could all come to an end soon. Two more years, though, flew by without so much as a postcard from Akia. Her loved ones had long since accepted that she and her baby were gone, but that didn't stop them from advocating for them. They continued to grant interviews, make appearances, organize searches, and hold vigils. They needed answers for Akia's nearly six-year-old daughter who still wondered what happened to her missing mommy. They had zero intentions of stopping, but the labor was exhausting. Sean said during the Black and Missing docuseries that searching for and advocating for Akia and his grandson was his and his wife's second full-time job. Faithfully, like they were paid, they got off one job and started the next job of working on the case. This alluded to the strain on a person's psyche and their body that doing such work causes. Sadly, this is common. It's a common reality for many people looking for missing loved ones or seeking justice for them. It basically feels like a never-ending cycle of pain, frustration, and sadness that goes on and on and on. Thankfully, change was on the horizon for Akia's case because the investigation got just what it needed, new life breathed into it by a brand new detective who was committed to closing this seemingly open and shut case. On February 3rd, 2022, nearly five long painful years since Akia missed her baby shower, there was finally an update in her case and it was huge. Marilyn Mosby, Baltimore's once on top of the world state prosecutor, called for an early morning press conference. She announced that on Tuesday, February 1st, Michael Andre Robertson had been arrested at his home in Michigan for the murder of Akia and her unborn child. Mosby stated more than once that this breakthrough in Akia's case came from a quote-unquote fresh set of eyes and additional investigative techniques. Not too sure exactly what those alleged 
investigative techniques are because the evidence she laid out in the presser plus the entire probable cause affidavit pretty much tells me that this is a largely circumstantial case that relies heavily on bank records, cell phone tower data, Google account data, Facebook data, and surveillance footage. Basically, all the things that have been available since, I don't know, day one? But I digress. Mosby goes on to state that the investigators laid out a solid timeline of events that they will use to prove that Robertson killed Akia. I'll share some of those details with you now, but be forewarned that I'm not gonna go into every little detail. I'll give you a very high level overview of what the state claims the timeline of events leading up to Akia's murder are. If you want to read the seven page affidavit yourself, It'll be linked in the show notes. Okay, so on May 1st, Akia sent a message to a friend via Facebook Messenger saying that she had a lot to do that included putting money down for a deposit on a new place, the renewal of her permit, and she wanted to look into buying a car. Her friend responded asking what place, to which Akia responded, quote, it's a place on Mount Street. Going to see it tomorrow if I like it. If so, I'm giving a deposit, end quote. The next day, May 2nd, at 12.42 p.m., Akia received photos from Robertson on Facebook. The photos were supposedly of the inside of an apartment or townhouse for rent. Robertson told her that the photos were blurry and that he would resend them from his phone. I'm guessing those photos were all it took to spur Akia forward because by 1.24 p.m., Less than an hour later, she was at a local Royal Farm store where she accessed the ATM to withdraw $450 that she used to purchase two blank money orders. Once that task was complete, she texted Robertson, quote, I called you. I got the money order, end quote. At approximately 3.45 on the same day, Robertson's Google account activity shows him performing a search of, quote, where can I cash a money order in Baltimore, Maryland, end quote. Just 15 minutes later at 4 p.m., Wells Fargo records show that Akia attempted to make two ATM withdrawals for a total of $600 from their downtown Baltimore location. Both transactions were declined. All the while, she was in constant contact with Robertson via text. But unfortunately, the exact content of those text messages will never probably ever be known because Akia's cell phone was never recovered and Robertson ended up getting a whole new phone number and new phone. Now, according to the cell phone records, Robertson was texting Akia from his job at Federal Interiors Group, which was about 10 miles from Akia's apartment. Tower records show that he left work via a lift and arrived at Akia's apartment around 4.15. Akia's cell records don't show her arriving back home for another hour. By 6.05 that evening, Akia took to Facebook to share a sonogram of her baby boy. Exactly one minute after Akia's post, with Robertson presumably there with her, he begins a series of text messages with Pomeroy, his other baby mama. 
According to the affidavit, the messages went back and forth via text message and Facebook Messenger until the early hours of May 3rd. Sounds like somebody was stalking Akia's page and gotten their feels from whatever they saw there. The affidavit goes on to provide some additional information that pretty much proves that Robertson is a, I don't know, sleazy, lying, gaslighting, manipulative community dick who basically didn't deserve any women at all. So I won't get into those things, but just know that he's trash and I'm also giving a very, very strong side eye to this Pomeroy woman. Anyway, it's now May 3rd and Robertson's cell phone records put him back at work at 6.30 in the morning where he stayed pretty much all day. He texted with Akia throughout the day and managed to have an 11 minute phone call with Pomeroy. On the afternoon of May 3rd at 12.52 p.m., Akia was captured on BB&T bank surveillance footage. She was at the counter of a former high school friend she was cool with at the bank, who I'll call Jessica, and Akia was depositing two money orders and a check from her employer. She and Jessica gabbed and caught up as usual, and Akia asked her how she could negotiate the money orders. Jessica advised that since the pay two lines were blank, she could just make them out to herself and deposit or cash them. Ikea deposited a total of $572.42 and then withdrew $450 cash. Ikea told Jessica that she originally got the money orders for a deposit on an apartment, but after having gotten them, the landlord then decided they only wanted cash. Now. As a former bank employee myself, this is a red flag to me, and it was one for Jessica too, because she knew that legit landlords want to deal with paper trails, meaning money orders and cashier's checks are welcome. But she didn't say anything to Akia about that. She just made a mental note of it because it was weird to her. By a little after three o'clock, Akia was back at home, and by 3.43 p.m., she ordered a lift for Robertson at his job. Additional cell phone records belonging to Akia and Robertson show that Akia stayed home and that Robertson had arrived at her house. Their phones were together at Akia's house until after 6 p.m. At 5.22, Akia sent a baby shower invitation to her friend via messenger. This was the last communication Akia sent to anyone. From 5.35 to 6.18 p.m., Robertson and Pomeroy were in contact with each other. They actually called each other four times within five minutes, and then there was no contact between them for another 20 minutes which takes us to six o'clock. You still with me? I know it's a lot of times and a lot of stuff to keep in mind and believe me, this is condensed. I'll skip some of the specifics here, but there were a lot of phone calls from Robertson to Pomeroy, Pomeroy to Robertson, and then Robertson to his brother. The calls lasted for various amounts of time and they paint a picture that something may have happened in the 13 minutes between when Akia sent her last message at 522 and when Robertson called Pomeroy the first time at 535. 
At 6.22, an hour after Akia's last message, cell phone data shows Robertson's phone on the move towards downtown Baltimore. During this commute, he was in constant communication with Pomeroy. In stark contrast, there are no cell phone data changes for Akia's phone since she neither made nor received any phone calls or texts. That is until 6.57 p.m. when her phone received what is believed to have been a call from a telemarketer. And this must be the one time in history that an annoying solicitation call actually broke a case and did a good thing. What the cell phone data showed when that call came in was that Akia's phone was no longer at her house, but it was in the same location as Robertson's in downtown Baltimore. After that, investigators believe that Robertson disabled Akia's phone because that's when all data ceased forever. Robertson eventually gets to his brother's house at about 7 p.m. And his brother told police he thought the visit was strange. Usually when Robertson goes to his brother's house, he expects to eat food because he's too broke to buy his own. But this time he didn't eat. And he brought a 40 ounce beer with him, which according to his brother, he could barely ever afford to buy. So it was just weird all the way around, according to the brother. Anyway, Robertson's phone didn't have much more activity for the rest of the night through the next morning when he went to work on May 4th. He shot off a couple of text messages to Akia's phone, but he never called her. By Saturday, May 6th, the day before Akia's baby shower, the affidavit reads that Robertson's phone no longer made any calls or text messages and Sprint changed his number that very same day. Now, also according to the affidavit, Robertson was interviewed several times since Akia's disappearance and lo and behold, each time he gave a contradictory statement. One such lie he got caught up in is one I particularly think cooked his goose. When questioned about why he changed his number, he claimed he did so because get this. Akia's family was harassing him about what happened to her. Hmm, really? How, Sway? How can that be? When he changed his phone number and why, when Akia wasn't even reported missing until the very next day. Yeah, not so smart this guy. The affidavit went on to point out all the many lies and inconsistencies presented by Robertson, including him saying that the last time he saw Akia was actually on May 1st and not May 3rd, which has already been refuted by the cell phone data and Lyft records, not to mention the actual Lyft driver identified him as being the one he dropped off a block from Akia's house on May 3rd. He also claimed that he never told Akia they were moving to an apartment together on Mount Street, but when detectives confronted him with his own Facebook messages showing the pictures that he sent her, 
he suddenly changed his story to, quote, I'll get the money or whatever, and then we can take it from there. We can go look at the place or whatever, end quote. Then when asked if they actually went to look at the place, he said, quote, no, we didn't go look at it. That's what we did not go anywhere. She couldn't leave the house. How could we go somewhere if she couldn't leave the house? End quote. Oh, and I failed to mention that the affidavit also pointed out that a review of the Google data linked to Robertson's account revealed numerous Google searches about Baltimore's trash procedures. The affidavit read, quote, a review of Google search history from October 14, 2017 revealed 18 distinct searches or links clicked regarding trash pickup, landfills, or dumpster pickup in Baltimore City. Specifically, searches were conducted on that day for, quote, where does Baltimore City trash go when picked up, which was searched for twice. He also searched for Baltimore City dumpster pickup and Baltimore City landfill, end quote. Apparently, this is why Detective McClarney said way back in 2019, they believed the dumpsters were utilized. Again, evidence they had years ago. Anyway, the affidavit never highlights a direct motive, but the long and short of it all is that it appears like Robertson planned to rid himself of Akia and the baby while also scamming her out of her hard-earned money. Dude even bought himself a big-ass beer to celebrate, I guess. So by the end of that long-ass affidavit, the ultimate request was permission to bring two charges of first-degree murder against Robertson, and that's exactly what he got. Since all of this went down in February 2022, Marilyn Mosby has since been fired from the state's attorney office, and I have not seen who the case was reassigned to. As of now, Robertson is in custody awaiting trial. That said, Mosby did mention during that press conference last year that the investigation was still ongoing to determine whether or not Robertson acted alone in the murders of Akia and her unborn baby. To them, and to me, it seems like he had a lot of help. In my opinion, meaning this is just my personal theory, we're taking a step back from the facts here, I think that during one or several of those calls to Pomeroy, maybe she could have made some calls of her own and had someone go to Akia's place to help out. Or maybe Robertson's brother is involved too, because it's not lost on me that he was also called and Robertson ended up at his house when it was all said and done. I think that law enforcement is still building a case against at least one other person, so I suspect we will be hearing another update hopefully soon. But for now, that is all I've got on this one. It was a doozy, right? Such an awful, awful story. I know when I heard she was pregnant, when she disappeared, that whatever happened to her, my mind pretty much thought it had something to do with her pregnancy. Honestly, that's how it often is when someone goes missing and they're a pregnant woman. But 
I want to be clear that in this case, again, there was no mention of a motive, but everyone is pretty much guessing the pregnancy may have been the kicker. That's something they're still looking into, though, so we'll find out hopefully in the future. At any rate, Akia didn't deserve what happened to her, and her baby surely didn't. They didn't deserve to have this case drawn out like this. I didn't see any evidence mentioned in the affidavit that needed another four or five years to surface. It sounded like the same old shit they had since the beginning. So what took so long? I have my suspicions, and I'm sure you do too. Just another case of a missing and now murdered black woman. Nothing to see here, right? As always, thanks for listening. If you want to read the whole affidavit, the link is in the show notes. Also, I want to thank every single one of you who has visited my fledgling new merch store and made purchases. I know those shipping costs are a pain in the ass, but your support means so much to me. But not just me, also to Shalissa Collier, Mikeyana Johnson's mother and more specifically to the Mikeyana Johnson Foundation for Abused Women. In case you haven't heard, I plan to donate half of the proceeds from the merch store this go round to the foundation. Massage Noir Murders is actually partnering with the Mikeyana Johnson Foundation for Abused Women and the Nan Washington Foundation for Global Wellness for the inaugural Mother's Brunch, an event to honor women and girls missing or killed due to domestic violence and the mothers who mourn them. Already this event is shaping up to be this magical experience and your continued support will help make it more so. If you are a mother whose daughter has gone missing or was killed due to domestic violence, we want you to attend so we can honor you and your daughter. You can register for the event by clicking the Eventbrite link in the show notes. Now, if you're not a mom who lost her daughter, that's okay. You can still attend and support. In fact, if you're interested in attending, volunteering, or donating a product or service to the event, please also register at the link in the show notes. It's an all hands on deck thing, so don't be shy. And I'll catch you next time on Massage Noir Murders. This is a Savvy Sounds production, written and produced by Renetta Rideout.